seventh week we've been together. Does that seem possible? Seven weeks of uh, looking at Luke together. And I've enjoyed my time here. Thank you again for the many ways in which you've uh, cared for us and uh, made our time here delightful. It's been a real joy. Are you still praying for Pastor Jeff? Don't forget him. He'll be back in a couple weeks. And uh, I hope you're praying that the Lord will just continue to refresh him to renew, restore in his spirit uh, a sense of calling to the ministry he's given him, and uh, perhaps even some, some clarification of directions for the future ministry with you. I don't know what God may be doing in his heart these days, but I'm sure this has been good time, refreshing time, and uh, you will be the beneficiaries of that, I assure you, as Jeff opens his heart and opens the word of God to minister to you upon his return. So I'll be here this morning, of course, and then next Sunday, and then Pastor Jeff will be returning to you. Our text for this morning, once again from Luke's Gospel, chapter 12, I'll be reading verses 31 through 40. Luke 12, 31 through 40. Now this verse 31, um, this is different in the um, New Living Translation that I'm used to thinking of, it. I memorized it as a child, and uh, had to look at this, oh yeah, I said, that's the verse I memorized. I had to be reminded. Verse 31 of Luke 12 is transitional. It concludes what Jesus has been saying about faith, trusting him in all of life, um, not giving oneself over to worry or fear. And it then leads us as well into what follows, which is a continuation of that same theme, and then turning as well to the account of his second coming, parables concerning a second coming. But let's begin at verse 31, reading it, and then continue on down through verse 40. He will give you all you need from day to day if you make the kingdom of God your primary concern. So don't be afraid, little flock, for it gives your father great happiness to give you the kingdom. Sell what you have, give it to those in need. This will store up treasure for you in heaven. And the purses of heaven have no holes in them. Your treasure will be safe. No thief can steal it, and no moth can destroy it. Wherever your treasure is, there your heart and thoughts will also be. Be dressed for service and well prepared as though you were waiting for your master to return from the wedding feast. And then you will be ready to open the door and let him in the moment he arrives and knocks. There will be special favor for those who are ready and waiting for his return. I tell you, he himself will seat them, put on an apron, and serve them as they sit and eat. He will come in the middle of the night or just before dawn, but whenever he comes, there will be special favor for his servants who are ready. Know this, a homeowner who knew exactly when a burglar was coming would not permit the house to be broken into, and you must be ready all the time. For the Son of Man will come when least expected. In a world accustomed to bad news, a world filled with um, tragedy and loss and scary what-ifs, there is a growing hunger among people for some good news. We keep waiting for some good news, but it is very slow in coming, isn't it? 
TV announcer recently was heard to say, tonight we have good news and bad news. First, the bad news, then a commercial, then another commercial, then a station break and the weather, and then the good news. We keep waiting for the good news, but it seems never to come. When is the network going to break into our regularly scheduled programming with some good news? I wonder how long it's been since you came away from the morning news feeling refreshed, ready for the challenges of the day. How can we possibly be encouraged by the latest news of pandemics and disease, forest fires and floods, record high gas and food cost and out of control inflation, war in the Ukraine, rampant crime in the streets of Chicago, corrupt politicians in the streets and clergy abuse in our churches. And the bad news just goes on and on seemingly without end. But that's only the beginning of the bad news. The really bad news is the stuff that touches us personally. Reminded of uh, Satan's conversation with God, at the opening of the book of Job, he asked for permission to test Job, and we read then that he virtually took from him everything he owned, everything he had. He comes back before God, and God says to him, have you noticed how my man Job is still serving me, is still blameless? You remember what Satan said to him? Mm-hmm. Skin for skin, let me touch the man himself. And he'll sing a different song. And for some of us here this morning, the bad news became intensely personal this past week. Maybe you got bad news from the doctor. Maybe you got news of the death of a loved one, maybe a parent, a brother, a sister. Maybe there was the loss of a job. Maybe you were betrayed by uh, your spouse or a BFF. Maybe you cried out to God and heaven seemed to be absolutely silent, not a word. If the bad news became personal for you this past week, you may well have joined the thousands, even the millions of God's people over the ages who have found themselves wondering, so what's so good about the good news? Our text for this morning speaks to this question, and, and while it does not attempt to answer all the many and troublesome questions that, that uh, we have as a result of living in a fallen world, it is a powerful and I think a practical reminder that for the child of God, the follower of Christ, there is good news today and every day. Now, just before we, we look further into the good news, we need to make certain that we're the intended recipients of this good news, okay? Because from time to time, Sherry and I, you probably have this experience too, we find in our mailbox a piece of mail that wasn't intended for us. Usually it's just an advertisement or a bill, something that we're very glad to pass along to its intended recipient. But imagine opening a piece of mail which announces that you've just won a million dollars 
only to discover on closer examination that it's not for you at all, but for your neighbor. Well, in like manner, the good news in our text for today is not, it is not for everyone. In fact, Jesus is very specific about who he intends it for. In verse 31, he says, this is for those who seek the kingdom of God, who seek the rule of God in all of life. They long for his rule in this world and in their daily decisions, just as he rules in heaven. In verse 32, he goes on to tell us that this good news he's about to share with us is for his little flock. That's the only place in the New Testament that endearing term appears. He says it is not for the multitudes who want to be associated with Jesus during his season of popularity. But will soon join the masses in, in crying for his crucifixion. No, it's not for them. In our day, we might distinguish his little flock from all those good Christian folk who call themselves Christians, but want nothing of his rule in their daily lives. In contrast to these the good time followers, a much smaller but much more devoted group of men and women make up the little flock. These men and women will follow him wherever he leads, even if necessary to their own personal cross. You see, what, what are you saying? Simply this, the good news in our text for today is your mail, if and only if you are a serious follower of Jesus Christ, not perfect, mind you, not perfect by any stretch of imagination, but genuine, sincere, devoted to his rule in our world and in your life. And with this important caveat in mind now, let's take a look at the good news Christ announces to his followers of every age. The first piece of, of good news that Jesus offers is this. He says, you don't need to live a life of worry and fear. You don't need to live a life of worry and fear. Isn't that good news? Jesus' teaching on worry and fear doesn't begin in verse 31. It actually begins way back in verse 22 where we read, Then turning to his disciples, Jesus said, So I tell you, don't worry about everyday life. You say, wait a minute, that's not good news. That's just one more command to stop worrying. People have been telling me to stop worrying my whole life, but it doesn't help me stop worrying. Where's the good news in that? Or look at our text for today, verse 32. So don't be afraid. There it is again. Another command to stop. This time, stop being afraid. A lot of help that is, you say. We all know that. We've been hearing it all of our lives from our moms and our teachers and our preachers and our doctors and even our songwriters. Don't worry. Be happy. During the Depression, the 1930s, a guy by the name of Felix Powell wrote a um, popular song that went something like this. What's the use of worrying? It was never worthwhile. So pack up your troubles in an old kit bag and smile, smile, smile. He sang that song for the last time in 1942, and when he finished singing it, he walked into a bedroom, took out a revolver, put it against his head, and pulled the trigger. 
apparently being told to stop worrying and stop being afraid lacks the power to change our natural inclination to do so. So once again, we ask, where's the good news? By the way, I should remind you, and many of you are aware of this, I'm sure, but I should remind you this morning, because it's so important here, that the command to stop being afraid is the single most often repeated command in all Scripture. That's right. Even more frequent than the command to love one another. Apparently, God knew we were going to have more than a little trouble with this one. Over the years, I've collected a number of priceless little sayings about worry and fear. They number in the dozens. Let me show you just two of them with you, two of my favorites. Edith Bunker about Archie. She said, he doesn't know how to worry without getting upset. <laughs> yeah, that's my, that's my problem. Colin Hightower, Hightower said, we all experience moments absolutely free from worry. These moments we call panic. If we didn't know better, we might conclude that worry and fear are the twin occupations for which we were created. I said if we didn't know better. A couple days ago, I was sitting in the dentist's office waiting for Sherry as she was having some work done, and I noticed uh, with uh, joy, maybe even a little excitement, there was a Gideon's Bible. You rarely see these anymore. Gideon's Bible in the doctor's office. I thought, that's great. So I'm waiting for her. I can hear the drill in the background. I pick up the book, and it flopped open to guess what? Job. Of course. What could be more appropriate in a dentist office? You say, yeah, but I'm still waiting for the good news. Here it is. Verse 30. Father God already knows your needs. See, I didn't pray this morning. I forgot to talk with him. See, he already knows. Verse 31. He will give you all that you truly need day to day. Verse 32. He gives, it gives him, it gives him great happiness to give you not only your basic needs, but to give you his kingdom as well. That is to give you what you long for most, his rule in your life, his peace, his joy, his determined future for your life. And just in case we have difficulty believing that Father God will in fact provide all that we truly need from day to day, Jesus has already supplied sufficient evidence for that fact back in verses 24 through 28. Remember, he told them, he said, look, the ravens don't worry about where their food's going to come from. They don't plant crops, but they always have enough to eat. God sees to it. And the lilies of the field, they, they're not Solomon. They're, they're not, they don't run around with their pockets filled with gold. They don't fashion shop. They, they simply trust God, and he clothes them with such incredible array of beauty that it surpasses anything that even Solomon ever had. And then on the heels of that, he says, you know, if God provided for the raven, he provided for the lilies, don't you think he might provide for you? Verse 28, you have so little faith. Well, you say, that is good news. 
but I don't know, maybe it must be easier for you, Marty, being a pastor. It must be easier for you having lived this life, grown up a Quaker. Those Quakers, they know how to trust God. It must be easier for you than it is for me. Actually, it's not. I sometimes think that I was born with the gift of worry. During my pastoral years, I would frequently sit down with my staff and say to them, I know you're concerned about some of the changes we're making, things that are coming up, but let me tell you something. Don't waste your time worrying about what can go wrong. Just come see me. That's what I do best. One thing I have learned about how to live in the light of the good news is this. The key, the key to living above worry and fear is to focus not on our problems, but to focus on the goodness, the goodness of Father God. Tony Evans has a way of saying things in very concrete, specific ways. He writes in his little book, Returning to Your First Love, fear, worry, is a hideous sin to God because it's an indictment against him. It's a slap at his love. If my children worried about whether I was going to feed and clothe them, I'd feel pretty bad about the way they thought of me as a father. They would indict me by their worry. When you worry, you're saying, God, I don't really know about you. I'm not sure you're a caring God. I'm not sure you're a providing God. Oh, you're good for church on Sunday, but I'm not sure about you, so I think I better take care of myself. Living in the light and the joy of God's victory over worry and fear begins when we focus, focus on the goodness of our Father God. Second piece of good news to be found in our passage for today is this. You can safely store your valuables in the first bank of heaven. Verses 33 and 34, sell what you have and give to those in need. This will store up treasure for you in heaven. And the purses of heaven have no holes in them. Your treasure will be safe. No, no politician, excuse me, no thief can steal it. And no moth can destroy it. Wherever your treasure is, there your heart and thoughts will also be. Most of us here this morning grew up with the assumption that banks, and for the most part, financial institutions, were safe places to store our treasures. Today, our confidence in these institutions is being shaken, to say the least. Almost every day we read messages or hear reports that foretell the collapse of our banks, if not our entire financial structure. Moths and rust and mold have been replaced by much more sophisticated enemies of our treasures. Hackers who want to get involved in identity theft. Inflation, constantly rising taxes. Foreign investors, even foreign governments threatening to foreclose on all our debts. Scam artists. And you know the list of dangers goes on and on. It's gotten, it's gotten so bad that one wonders whether or not there is such a thing as an honest financial institution. And feeling the skepticism of our age, 
The banks are doing an interesting thing. They're actually giving signing bonuses to anybody who gets up enough courage to invest in their banks. $300 here, $500 there, just if you put a little money in their bank. Meanwhile, we're being told to get ready for the demise of real money altogether. So if ever Jesus' words about a bank that is completely fail-safe found a ready audience, it ought to be today. Verse 33, the purses of heaven have no holes in them. Your treasures will be safe. But as exciting as this word from the Lord is, only a handful, a little flock, see it as good news. You say, why is that? Because of the way in which one must make deposits in this uh, bank of heaven. You say, oh, I know how to make a deposit. You fill out a form, and you, you put your, your account number in, and your name as it appears on your check, and you, you, you bring the entries of the checks from the back side to the front side, and you add them up, and you total them, and then you submit it to the teller along with any cash you have. No. That's, that's not how you make a deposit to your account in Heaven's Bank. That's how you make a deposit to your account at PNC or BMO, or one of those other three-lettered banks. To make a deposit in heaven's bank, you must, are you ready? Verse 33, sell what you have and give it to those in need. That's how you store up your treasures in the bank of heaven. You say, wait a minute, you mean the way you build up your account in the bank of heaven is by giving your money away, by investing in the kingdom work of Christ and his church? That's right. And that's why so few, even among those who call themselves Christians, see this as good news. But for those whose hearts, who affect, whose affections, whose priorities are firmly placed in the kingdom, the rule of Christ in this age and in the ages to come, this is the best possible news. It means that every time I invest something of my time, my energy, my talents, or my money in the upbuilding of Christ's eternal kingdom, I'm building an eternal account that can never be touched by inflation or four-legged or two-legged rats, taxes, scams, hackers, sickness, natural catastrophes, international politics, and the list goes on. Not only that, I'm investing in a wealth management program that will grow exponentially throughout my lifetime and on throughout eternity. And for those of us who are members of this little flock, this is the best news possible. A chance to invest wisely and generously without the fear of loss. A third piece of good news found in our text for today. Isn't it great how much good news there is in this text? And here you thought it was all a text about what we should do and shouldn't do. A third bit of good news. You can live with joyful anticipation of the future. You can. In verses 35 and 36 of our text, Jesus portrays the little flock as a group of servants anxiously waiting the return of their master. Their joy and anticipation are seen in the fact that they are ready and waiting to open the door and let him in the moment he arrives. They can hardly wait. It's interesting to note 
that all scripture, most especially the, the letters of the New Testament, portray the people of God as joyfully waiting for Christ's return at the end of the age. There is a spirit of joyful anticipation shared by the followers of Christ as they look forward to that day. Now, to be sure, the scriptures also speak at length of cataclysmic events in the last days. Earthquakes, famines, wars, COVIDs, along with great blasphemies and unparalleled evil. But even in, in these most difficult of days, the people of God are always portrayed always portrayed as anxiously awaiting the return of their king, looking joyfully to the future. In many parts of the world, that's still true among the people of God. But somehow this spirit of joyful anticipation seems to be missing in large part in the church of the West. I'm inclined to believe this is because we have experienced affluence and good times here in the West for so long that we've forgotten that, what's the song say? This old world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. We've gotten rather comfortable with this old world. Still, for those of you on the far side of 40, especially 50, really at 60, oh my goodness, at 70 and I'm not at 80 yet, but I guess it'll be there too. Still, as the years pass and the body and the mind begin to fail, as there are more and more trips to see the doctor, more and more tragedies in the world around us, more and more funerals to attend. When's the last time you attended a wedding or a christening? More and more concerns about whether or not our retirement fund will outlast us. More and more days when we wake with pain and go to bed with pain and are awakened in the middle of the night by pain. As the disappointments and the losses of this life pile up so high that they threaten to blind us to the glorious future that awaits us. We may become like our friends in the world who live without hope. And the future may become, for us as for them, a scary place filled with shadows and uh, demons. I got news this week of a, a friend, and uh, actually for a season of years, a congregant in one of my churches, who took his own life this past week because he just couldn't face the future. Sadly, the blessed hope of the believer had become so dull, so distant, so unsure in his thinking that he lost sight of it completely. Now, this is where, as a pastor, I am to reassure you with the thought that while this life may be filled with many dark and painful chapters, we know how the book ends. We know the last chapter. That's what I'm supposed to tell you, right? Well, that's all well and good, but I think it misses entirely the perspective of Scripture. Maybe I can demonstrate the perspective of Scripture on this matter by, by the use of this book for just a moment, if I may. Um, 
The good news concerning the future is not that there is a better chapter at the end of the book. It's not that all the pain and disappointments of this life uh, are but waiting for us at the end. It's like somebody would have said, you know, the, the best is yet to come. Apple pie is at the end. Well, that's a nice little ditty, that's a nice thought, but that's not the biblical thought at all. The biblical thought is that at the front end of this book, there's a page called Preface. And that one page is all about all the disappointments and all the discouragements and all the losses and all the pain and all the frustrations and all the bad feelings and all the bad smells and all the bad stuff that you experience in this life. And the rest of the book is about God's plan for you, which is good stuff. This is a moment. This is page one. This is the preface. The whole book is about the glory of God laid out for you. You read in the book of Revelation and we get a feel for this, just a touch. Over and over in scripture it comes through. We read, for instance, in, in Revelation 21, look, the home of God is now with his people. There's a day coming. Won't be long. We'll look back on this and say, did that, happen? Did that even really happen? He will live with us. He'll be our, his, our God. And he will be his people. He'll remove all the sorrows. And there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. For the old world and its evils will all be gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I'm making all things new. And then he said to me, write this down. In other words, make sure you tell the people. But what I'm telling you is trustworthy and it's true. To all who are thirsty, I will give the springs of water of life. Without charge. All who are, are victorious will inherit all these blessings, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. All the pain, all the disappointments of this life are but the preface, the first page, to be followed by endless chapters so glorious we can't find words to describe them. Oh, you say the streets of heaven are going to be like gold. I don't, don't you get it? It's not that they're going to be gold. What are you going to do with gold in heaven? God's trying to tell you things are going to be so incredible, so valuable, so endlessly worthy of your commitment and your investment and the little span that you spend on this earth. I'm telling you, it's going to be so good. I don't even have words to describe it to you. This is the good news concerning the future which God has prepared for us. And we can, if we will, live every day of this present life in joyful anticipation of it. Finally, one more piece of good news for those who are serious followers of Christ. You will, at the return of Christ, be among the most blessed of all people. Verses 37 and 38, there will be special favor for those who are ready and waiting for his return, I tell you, he himself will seat them, put on a servant's apron, and serve them as they sit and eat. Whenever he comes, there will be special favor for his servants who are ready. Now, what can it possibly mean? 
that at Christ's return for his little flock, his true followers, he'll seat them, he'll put on the apron, the attire of a servant, and he will personally serve them. Mr. Lenski, in his commentary, writes this. Jesus takes the human imagery of a great Lord's returning to his palace and his slaves receiving him back, and then he gives it a turn that's unheard of among earthly lords. This Lord does not seek his ease and retire for the night. He changes his slaves into lords. He makes as grand a feast for them as the one from which he just came. And he has them reclined to dine and wonder of wonders. He doesn't order other slaves to serve them. He makes himself their slave and he serves them. And then Lenski wisely adds, what this really means is reserved for us to learn when that great hour comes. Pretty hard to imagine it, isn't it? But this image is not as strange as you might think. You say, I never read such a thing in Scripture. Oh, yes, you did. You read it back in Psalm 23, one of your favorite Psalms, 23.5. He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. My enemies. He anoints my head with oil. He takes the role of a servant. He anoints me. John 13, just, just in, in this same season of Christ's life, in the last days, we read how he knelt before his disciples and washed their feet. Philippians 2, 7 and 8 tell us he humbled himself. He humbled himself and, and he went to the cross to pay the price for you and me. Took on the form of a servant. Revelation 19, he invites us to join him at the wedding feast of the Lamb. Is it any wonder that Luke pronounces us blessed or blessed? I don't know how you like to say it, but the word means highly favored. And he says that both in verse 37 and 38. Who among us, who among us would dare picture the Son of God, the one through whom the worlds were created, the, the, the one who, who redeemed lost mankind, stooping before us like this as a servant? And our immediate response to such a thought can only be that of Peter when our Lord knelt at his feet to wash. Remember what he said? Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Little old me. And yet here's the proof. Here's the final word on the matter. The word of God. See, a day is coming when your Savior will seat you at his table of honor and he will serve you. And this is the special favor that he has in store for everyone who is found faithful and waiting for him at his return. You, my friend, with all of your imperfections and failings, with your spotty track record at best, and your nearly constant struggle against sin, you are highly favored and most blessed of all people. Why? Could it be that we're actually better than we think we are? I don't think so. I think Paul had it right. We're the chief of sinners. There is nothing in us that deserves his favor. And yet he calls us blessed. The most favored of all people. And he has promised to treat us accordingly in the new heaven and the new earth. This and nothing less is our destiny. To sit at table with Christ to rule and to reign with him, to serve him and be served by him, to be his highly favored for all eternity.
Now that's what I call good news. Now here's the great challenge for you. Here's the great challenge for me. To go out of this place and live one day at a time in the light of that kind of good news. Almost everything you read this week, almost everything you see on TV, everything you hear, stories from the city, stories from the suburbs, maybe the events of your own personal life will try to tell you this is a lie. You're going to have to decide whether you believe the foolishness of this age or the counsel of a sovereign God. Spirit of God, teach our hearts. Teach us of your goodness and your favor, for which we are anything but worthy. May we live in the light of that today and always. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Amen.